Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Greetings to all of you on this uh, Thanksgiving weekend. I want to welcome all of us at uh, Center Street Church. Those of us are here at Central Campus, as well as those uh, watching from our campus in Northwest Calgary and South Calgary. Also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Last weekend, I started off a, a mini-series that I'm calling Unveiled Jesus in the Book of Revelation. As I mentioned to you last time, the word revelation simply means unveiling or bringing to the surface what is previously hidden. This book is not just a revelation of end-time prophecies, but it is the revelation of a person, the Lord Jesus. And you see the full spectacular view of Jesus in this book of the Bible. And in my view, Revelation is one of the most Christ-centered books in the New Testament. And that is why if we make anything else other than Jesus the focus of this book, then our interpretation will inevitably be skewed. Now keep this in mind. The book of Revelation wasn't written directly to us in the 21st century. We are not its original recipients. In fact, that is true of every book in the Bible. Now, this may seem obvious, but in a me-centered society, it is important we clarify it. The books of the Bible were written in a particular historical context to a specific audience. Now, because the Bible is the inspired Word of God, it is applicable for all of us today. It speaks to every generation with relevance, and we can base our lives on the teachings of the Bible because it is God's holy Word. But before we apply the Bible to our day and age, it is important that we first understand what a book of the Bible meant to its original audience. The Apostle John, while on exile in the island of Patmos, under the brutal Roman Emperor Domitian, wrote this book to the seven churches in Asia. The early church was discouraged as they faced one wave of persecution after another. Their struggling little movement reeled under the relentless onslaughts of violence and martyrdom as their way of life confronted with the culture of their time. Christians refused to participate in the emperor worship that was demanded of all who were part of the Roman Empire, which made them atheists in the eyes of the Roman government. They were seen as political traitors who gave their allegiance to another king. The early church faced a major dilemma. They struggled to reconcile their suffering with Christ's victory. They were perplexed by this question. If Jesus has already won the battle, why are we not experiencing the victory? And I believe that's a question for every age. It's something that we wrestle with today. The first century Christians believed Jesus is Lord. But their circumstances seem to be stating the exact opposite. The victory of Jesus did not align with what they were presently experiencing. Humanly speaking, 
this small group of Christians were no match to the mighty Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, with all its pomp and glory, dazzled, while the small sect of Christians were hunted, killed, mocked, and shamed. As Christians uh, suffered for their faith, the evil one wanted to deceive them by saying, this Christianity is all a big hoax. Scoffers abounded, and they questioned, where is the promise of Jesus' return? Now, it is this historical context that serves as a backdrop to the book of Revelation. Daryl Johnson, in his book, uh, Discipleship on the Edge, points out, Revelation is a down-to-earth manual on how to be a disciple facing the harsh realities of life on earth. And he goes on to say, Revelation helps us to see the present in light of the future reality. And not only that, it also offers an alternate reading of the current reality. Things are not the way they appear to be on the outside. Today, when we read Revelation, we are so obsessed with what it has to say about the end of the world. But let's not forget its original audience was a relatively small, fledgling church that desperately needed a fresh infusion of hope. Now, I am not discounting the prophetic content of the book of Revelation. It does speak to the future. But as a circular letter that was written to the early church, this book wasn't just about what might happen thousands of years into the future, but what it meant for them now. If the book of Revelation was a complicated theological crossword puzzle as some see it today, what benefit would that have been for the early church to whom John wrote? To the early church, the message of Revelation was crystal clear. Don't you worry about your circumstances. Look at Jesus. Jesus is king, not Caesar. The kingdom of Christ is far more powerful than our earthly kingdoms. And Jesus is coming soon to make everything right. Now, if this is the message of Revelation, it resonates with every generation irrespective of our geography, history, time, and space. And this message is much needed in North America today. What are we facing in 21st century Canada? Moral depravity and a culture that has lost its ability to discern right and wrong. Government intensifying its stance against God in general and Christians in particular. A media that seems to always portray the church in negative light a systematic decimation of the Christian foundations of our nation. These are the realistic issues that we are wrestling with today. And the majority of the world seems to be at odds with our beliefs and practices as Christians. We are caught up in the immensity of all of this. And let me tell you, it's not going to get easier. And that is why you and I need to be reminded what the early church needed to be reminded of. 
Jesus is still Lord. He has already won the victory, and it's only a matter of time. He will prove that to the whole world. More than anything else, we desperately need an exalted vision of Jesus, and that's what the book of Revelation offers us. Today, we're going to see a portrait of Christ in the book of Revelation that will fill your heart with thanksgiving and worship. Now, as I read the book of Revelation, I can say with confidence, Christians ought to be the most thankful people. And I don't say this glibly or because I'm supposed to say this on a Thanksgiving weekend. But when we realize that God has a plan for our life and for this world, that nothing happens inadvertently, that there are no accidents, when we believe that Jesus rules and reigns, our hearts will be flooded with thanksgiving and praise. Today we're going to look at Revelation chapter 5. And Jennifer is here to recite this chapter of the Bible for us. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. But then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I looked and I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the 24 elders. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down in worship before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, <laughs> 10,000 times 10,000. And in a loud voice, they sang, 
Praise be to the Lamb who was slain. To him, be worth, he is worthy of receiving all honor and power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is within them singing to you who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders bowed down and worshiped. Thank you, Jennifer, for helping that passage to come alive. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you for a glimpse into heaven through your word. And we saw all of heaven worshiping you because they realize your worth. And I pray today that you will help us to see your worth in a fresh new way like we've never seen before. That our hearts will join with the heavenly host to giving you all the glory, honor, and praise because you alone deserve it. So come and minister to us today in the power of your spirit. We ask this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A London-based luxury travel company exists to serve prospective brides and grooms so they could have the best wedding possible. The company claims uh, we make sure the only hiccups on your big day come from the champagne. They even promise that they will keep rain from ruining your wedding day. Now, how is that possible? The company offers a cloud-bursting service with a 100% guarantee for fair weather and clear skies. All of this for only $150,000. And the disclaimer says, uh, success can be guaranteed. However, if a natural disaster such as a hurricane were to occur, this cannot be controlled. Well, at the end of the day, there are no guarantees because we are not in control of life. Oh, but how we like to be in charge. That feeling of being in the driver's seat is a drug of choice for many people. The book of Revelation has news for us. We are not in charge of our life, nor this world. The governments, powerful leaders, the people of influence, celebrities, the movers and shakers of our society, they are not in charge of this world. God is in charge of this world, and he has transferred the authority of running this world to Jesus. If there's Anything that the early church needed to know, it was this. God's got a plan. Jesus is in control. And nothing can happen to us that will ever take them by surprise. That is the message of Revelation chapter 5. Our text opens with these words in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. 
Now the one who sits on the throne is the king of kings, the Lord of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth. He is God Almighty. God's right hand is a symbol of his power and authority. And in his right hand is a scroll sealed with seven seals. A scroll was uh, made out of uh, strips of papyrus glued together to form a lengthy strip that can be rolled. This was the most uh, popular writing material in the ancient world. The fact that this document was uh, sealed shows the importance of the document. The seven seals ensured that the scroll was kept closed and it was reserved for the rightful recipient to open. The scroll actually resembles a Roman last will. It's sealed so its contents are not tampered and the person who can open this will is the executor. What does this scroll stand for? There are varying interpretations on what this uh, scroll signifies. But based on my study, I believe the scroll stands for God's redemptive plan, which includes salvation and judgment. The contents of the scroll reveal how God will culminate his plan of salvation to bring his creation back in alignment with his original plans. So this scroll is the full account of what, what God in his sovereign will has determined to be the destiny of the world. The early church needed to be reminded whatever they were facing were not haphazard, random circumstances, but God has a plan. In the midst of the chaos and confusion, there is a divine intent. God is not just seated on the throne, but he is actively engaged in the fulfilling of his purposes and directing the course of history. Scrolls were normally written on one side, but this particular scroll is written on both sides to show the completeness of God's plan. Nothing needs to be added. This is comprehensive. A sovereign God holds the destiny of the world in his hands. God's ultimate plans and purposes can never be thwarted. Now in verses 2 and 3, we see that there is a dilemma and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loved voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. God has a foreordained plan for the universe, but who is able to execute this plan? Who is worthy enough to take the sealed scrolls from the right hand of God and open the seals? Who is the rightful recipient of the scroll who has the power to put this plan into effect? And John says, there was a search and no one was found who was worthy of putting God's plan of redemption into effect. No one in the entire universe who had the wisdom and wherewithal, the power and the authority to establish the plan of God. And in response, John weeps. The word used here for weep is a strong word. It's usually used when mourning the death of a loved one, such as Mary weeping at the death of her brother, Lazarus. John wept when he realized 
If the scroll remains unopened, we are left to ourselves. Are we going to run this universe on our own with no overarching plans? John represents the helplessness of humanity without a savior. Nothing is more futile than living in a world that has no plan or order. If our lives don't have a larger unifying meaning, then our little activities seem meaningless as well. That is why you cannot answer the deeper questions of life from a mere materialistic perspective. John's weeping is symbolic of the sadness and disappointments of the human heart alienated from God. So this is a pretty gloomy picture. But in steps Jesus. And you will not find a higher Christology in the New Testament than these verses here in Revelation. Look at verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. When John wept out loud, one of the elders tapped him on his shoulder to say, there is someone who is worthy to take the scroll and execute God's plan. So into this dismal scene, Jesus steps in and he brightens everything up. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is also the messianic king in the lineage of David as per the promise of the Old Testament. So he is the root of David. The text emphatically tells us the lion has overcome and he is able to break the seals and open the scroll. Now John expects to see a glorious, majestic, roaring lion who has triumphed victoriously. And as he turns around, you see one of the greatest paradoxes in the Bible the imagery shifts from a majestic, roaring lion to one of the meekest of all of God's creation. Here's verse 6. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, there are two different Greek words for lamb in the New Testament. The one used here signifies a little lamb, a young lamb. There cannot be any other startling juxtaposition of imagery. The mighty roaring lion wins by being slaughtered as a lamb. If you notice, the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. The lamb may be outwardly meek in appearance and diminutive in size, but the seven horns signify power. Seven is a number of completion. Horns stand for strength. So it shows he's immensely strong. He's omnipotent. The seven eyes signify his ability to see. He is all-knowing. He is omniscient. The seven spirits of God are symbolic of the fullness of God's Holy Spirit. So the Lamb is filled with God's Spirit. 
Now, how does the lion of the tribe of Judah triumph? He triumphs not as a lion by pouncing and tearing his prey, but as a lamb by allowing himself to be torn apart. And here comes probably the most important revelation of this book. It is the central, pivotal truth of the entire Bible. At the very center of history is the cross of Christ. The reason John presents the lion conquering as a lamb is to highlight the centrality of the cross. It is at the cross the lion became a lamb who was slain. He was slaughtered on the cross of Calvary and offered as a sacrifice. And through his shed blood, he won the most decisive victory. If you've read uh, C.S. Lewis' uh, Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, or watched the movie, Aslan, the lion, represents Jesus. And how did Aslan conquer? Aslan did not conquer as a lion. He had to lay helpless on a stone table and face the brunt of evil. He is humiliated. He's mocked and jeered by the forces of darkness. His beautiful mane is shaved off, and he doesn't resist or fight back. Aslan, the lion, is brutally tortured and killed. That is a, a graphic depiction of Christ's crucifixion. Now, one of the important theories of the atonement that the early church held on to was Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. What seemed to be the defeat of Jesus turned out to be his greatest victory. When Satan contributed to Christ's death on the cross, it was his greatest tactical error, for he took part in his own defeat. When Jesus died on the cross, it is through this act he stripped the principalities and powers. It was an act of outright victory. Now look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, how it describes this victory. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus triumphed through the cross. The same word, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has triumphed by becoming a lamb that was slain. The verse in Colossians speaks of Satan's defeat. Through the cross, Jesus disarmed and triumphed over the devil and over all the principalities and forces of darkness. The lion has conquered as a lamp. And here is an important lesson for us. How do Christians triumph? Not as lions, but as lamps, not by domination or power or force, but through the path of self-sacrifice, we advance the mission of God and the victory of Jesus. Now here in our vision, all heaven's attention in the throne room of God now turns towards the slain lamp. The four living creatures signify all of God's creation, including the animal world. 
The 24 elders are representatives from the redeemed community of God's people from both the Old and the New Testament. Now at the very center of the throne, right in the middle, surrounded by all of creation, all of redeemed humanity, is the Lamb. And if you notice carefully, the Lamb is standing even though He was slain. This is the resurrected Savior who died and He still bears the scars of His agony. But He was slain and He now stands forevermore. Now here's a question for you. In the previous chapter, Revelation chapter 4, who is at the center of the throne? It's God Almighty. The one who is worshipped and adored by all of heaven. He is the one who is sitting on the throne holding the scrolls in his right hand. And now who is at the center of the throne? The Lamb. Clearly, he has taken the place of God. Now, God would not share his throne with anyone. But here we have a co-occupant to God's throne. The Lamb is divine. You know, for strict monotheists like the Jews, it was blasphemy to think there is another being occupying the throne of God. And yet, from the very beginning, Christians worshipped Jesus as God. There are so many cults today that deny the divinity of Jesus. Religions like Islam see Jesus as just a prophet. But here is what you need to know. The Lamb is sitting on the throne that belongs to God because clearly He is God. It is indisputable. You cannot refute His claim to Lordship. So the next time the Jehovah's Witness knock on your door on a Saturday morning when you're still in your PJs, show them Revelation chapter 5. The image of the Lamb occupying God's throne. Either they will get saved or they will never come back to bother you. Both outcomes are good. <laughs> Jesus has conquered. The decisive victory has already been won through his death and resurrection. So the book of Revelation reassures its readers the final battle portrayed in Revelation as Armageddon is only a manifestation of the victory, but the actual victory has already occurred on the cross 2,000 years ago. And now you have to visualize this with me because now you have a scene of breathtaking audacity and boldness. The slain lamb walks up to the throne of the one who holds the scroll and he takes it from his right hand. The authority is now being transferred. Jesus has seized destiny, taken charge of the events of history, and he takes the onus on himself to execute God's plans for the world. And if you think... Things in our world are spiraling out of control. It's because you don't have the right perspective. 
You're not looking at the spiritual reality, but your vision is peripheral. If only you will open your spiritual eyes, and if you wear Revelation chapter 5 like a pair of glasses, you will see the Lamb, the resurrected Savior, has already ascended to His throne. And the scroll that was once in the right hand of God Almighty is now in the hands of Jesus. He holds the destiny of the universe. Now, what is the response of heaven to Jesus taking the scroll, breaking the seals, and opening it? There were three explosions of worship. the four living creatures and the 24 elders worship the Lamb. The multitudes of angels that no one could count then join in their own outburst of praise. And then lastly, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea all join in a chorus of praise. Now hear what uh, the 24 elders and the four living creatures say. Verses 8 to 10. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. This is a picture of the ongoing worship that's happening in heaven. This is unceasing worship, unbroken praise. Worship doesn't happen when you and I come to church and start singing. Whenever we worship, we tune in to the worship service that is already taking place in heaven. Now, have you ever watched our worship services uh, on, on the computer or on your tablet? Do you see what you're doing? You are tuning in with the worship that's happening here at Center Street Church, from wherever you are, you're participating in our worship experience. Guess what? When we lift our voices to praise and worship, we are tuning in to the worship of heaven and participating in it. That is the highest honor that's been given to you and me. And when you gather as a family this Thanksgiving weekend, to give thanks to God for his many blessings, you are tuning in to heaven and joining in the angelic chorus of praise. There is a worship service that is happening all the time, and the invitation is being extended to us to come join in this praise. And who is the object of worship? The Lamb who is at the center of the throne. He is worthy. If you look at the etymology of the word worship, it is the old English word, worth-ship. When we worship, we are proclaiming God's worth 
And there is one worthy of our worship. It's Jesus. If Jesus is not on the throne, there will be no access to heaven. There will be no way for us to connect with God. But the lamb who is seated on the throne was nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago as our substitute. And by his blood, he ransomed people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And that's why he deserves our highest praise. And today, the invitation is extended to every single one of us. No matter who you are, what's your background, the invitation is for you to participate in this heavenly worship. Worship the one who is worthy of our praise because he gave himself for you. History is heading in one direction. This is a certainty. Our sovereign Jesus is directing all events to culminate in one grand crescendo to the final day when everything will be brought under the Lordship of Christ. Everything. And on this final day of consummation, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will receive worship and praise from multitudes that no one can count representing every people group in this world. Now, whatever your circumstances are, know this, God's got this. It's all going according to God's plan. Jesus has written the script and the story has a beautiful ending. Now, think about this. The church to whom John wrote, felt heavily outnumbered. They thought they were a minority. They felt so weak and insignificant. Now John sees this vision and describes an alternate reality of multitudes of worshipers before the throne room of God. Now according to this vision, the early Christians were not a minority. They were joining with the multitude of believers in heaven and multitudes of angels that no one could count. So in light of this vision, do you know who was the minority? It was the Roman Empire that was a minority. Caesar, in all his pomp and glory, who sought worship, looked small in light of this glorious king who was seated on the throne, the lion and the lamb. The power of Rome to conquer and subdue faded in light of the power of sacrificial love. And the small, fledgling early church was an invincible army representing the kingdom of God. Everything was reversed in light of this vision. And today, when this vision sinks in our hearts and in our minds, it will change your perspective. Are you discouraged by the events in your life? Are you concerned about the state of our world? Are you losing sleep about the declining influence of the church? 
Are you here wondering, I've had a difficult year. What can I be thankful for? Turn your eyes upwards towards heaven. Fix your eyes on the lamb who's seated on the throne. Everything will be reversed in light of this vision. Jesus has triumphed gloriously, and if you belong to him, yours is the victory. I'm going to ask us to stand as we come to an end. This Thanksgiving weekend, we are not just thankful for the stuff, but we are thankful for our Savior. There's no one like him. He is the lion and the lamb. He purchased us with his own blood so we can be part of the family of God. And for that, he deserves our highest thanks and praise. So why don't we just close our eyes right now? and bring to our minds the vision that is described here in Revelation chapter 5. And allow this vision to sink deep in and give you a fresh new perspective of everything surrounding you, your life, this world, and the church. After a moment of silence, I'll close us in prayer. Lord, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory, and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. We bow down to you, Lord, in worship, in adoration. For you hold everything in the palm of your hands. That nothing has happened or will ever happen outside of your control. So today we rest in your sovereignty. We rest in the assurance that we have a risen, conquering Savior. And we give you all the glory, honor, and praise. We pray today, Lord, even on this Thanksgiving weekend, that our hearts will be filled with gratitude, that you came seeking for us when we were far away, that you shed your blood to redeem us, so we can be part of your family. That today we have nothing to fear. The circumstances of our life or what's happening in this world, they all look small in light of our big vision of who you are. So I pray that we will live out our life in light of this vision.
that we will be fearless, bold, and confident ambassadors of this Jesus who has personally commissioned us and called us to be his representatives. So use us, we pray, as your church to bring your good news that many more will join in this song of praise and worship. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.